On this week's 51%, we catch up with some savvy women in STEM. Anne-Marie Lannessy of CanCode Communities offers her advice for those looking to work in the tech sector. You know, people mostly think of, oh, I'll be a computer programmer, but there's so much more. And I would just say, keep exposing yourself to opportunities. And we also stop by the Springfield Science Museum in Western Massachusetts to speak with its new director, Jenny Powers, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. We've got a couple STEM-related interviews lined up for you today. While more and more women are majoring and pursuing careers in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, the fields are still largely male-dominated, particularly sectors like computer science and engineering. Our main guest today is working to increase access to digital literacy and web development training to people of all ages, races, and genders. Anne-Marie Lannessy is the founder and CEO of CanCode Communities, a nonprofit established in 2016 to provide training and grow the tech sector's workforce in New York's capital region. What started as Albany Can Code has since expanded into nine different locations or communities across the state, as well as various programs for K-12 students. Lannessy says there's really a vast industry behind the technology we use every day, and there's room for everybody. I had a very, I would say, fortunate opportunity when I was in high school, actually even rewind, back to middle school. When I was in the seventh grade, I had the opportunity to work on a digital project. This was back in the... Hmm, probably the early 90s. I'm going to age myself. I think we could pick an animal and we were just recreating it like on the screen. And I remember how much I enjoyed it. Like I was really interested in like creating this beautiful toucan bird with pixels, essentially. I just kind of followed that pursuit into college. I went right across the street to RPI. I didn't travel far and got really lucky to be part of a program that was teaching like, I would say, digital studies back before way before now. So for example, we were saying things like video on the web, and that was long before there was something called YouTube. And we were trying to figure out how to do remote conferencing before that was a word. And so we're doing all these really interesting things with computers. And I got really passionate about it. And that just became, you know, I feel like I kind of fell into it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about exposure for young people and for all people, actually, because I feel like when people don't have exposure opportunities to STEM careers or STEM pathways, they don't actually know that they're good at it and they might like it. And so that was a very early genesis of what got me to create what was originally Albany CanCode, now CanCode Communities. I worked in multimedia. I worked in software consulting. I ran a software company as a woman entrepreneur and a woman in technology, seeing very few faces like mine in the rooms that I was sitting in and the projects that I was on. And actually, when I was in college, very few women in the program. So say one out of 10 in a class of 10 was a woman. At my software company, I hired an individual who never went to college who worked in a kitchen. And he sat side by side with a recent college grad and from one of the top tier computer science engineering degree programs, which I'm very fond of. And this individual who was self-taught just over a couple months who came to work for us as an intern was able to keep up in some cases pass, speed past the, you know, the recent college grad who had this great engineering education. And I realized at that moment, my heart got lit on fire, that there are people like him all across our communities that have no idea they have the aptitude for these high-paying tech sector jobs. 
And I felt so inspired to get to work to try to create a pilot that could find ways to build pathways for people into technology careers. And that was in 2016, and fast forward to 2022, and we've been doing this for six years now, and some of the most wonderful and beautiful work I've ever done. Awesome. So what are some of the services that I guess CanCone Communities provides, and like, how do you introduce people into this whole realm of coding and computer science? So with our software consulting and software training, we are teaching several different technologies. So we teach front-end web development, which is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. We have a JavaScript track, which is more fundamentals of JavaScript, and then sort of a deeper dive into JavaScript using a framework called React. And so we have a pathway for React and JavaScript training. We do Python for data analytics. SQL, which is a database platform. We've done Microsoft Azure. We've done Salesforce training. We're about to start a user experience design class. So we have a whole series of curriculums that we teach adults. Um, and we do that in partnership with educators, so community colleges and BOCES programs. And then with our K-12 and sort of work that we're doing with schools, we partner with school districts and um, educators to bring exposure opportunities to the classroom. And that can look like a broad range of things. After school enrichment, summer camp programming, working directly with teachers for teacher training, working with teachers to help them implement technology in their classrooms. We find that you know teachers are, are expert at teaching, but sometimes if technology is something that they're not as comfortable with, like helping them remove that barrier so that they can expose kids, uh, there's also this like idea that kids already know because they're digital natives, but the reality is kids are predominantly users, they're not quite makers, and like we're trying to shift kids from being just users and consumers of technology into actual makers and developers of technology, so we do that with schools. And then our digital literacy program teaches people the basics of computer. How to use a digital platform, our whole training is online, so teaching people how to use the computer through the computer, which is kind of amazing and remarkable <laughs> that it works. Um, we expose them to like Microsoft technologies, Google technologies, video conferencing technologies, help them build a resume. Many people take for granted the fact that in order to apply for a job today, you have to know how to go online and do a, a job search. You have to be able to you know, input your resume into a program. That used to be you could go door to door and hand a piece of paper that you would type up. Um, and many people that don't have those basic skills really truly are kind of left out of all jobs in the job market. So those are the um, job-focused types of training that we're, we're doing with adults and then exposure opportunities with kids. In terms of exposure opportunities for kids, like what are some common ways that you try to open that door to sort of show them how this stuff can be like really cool? You mentioned that how you're kind of transitioning them from like users to makers. What does that transition look like? So the concept that peop that young people are digital natives is definitely the case. Like, I believe that to be true. I agree with that. But this idea that they understand what they're using is we're still very early in their digital fluency sort of transformation. I can't say this across the board, but we find that many kids really like playing video games. So that is one area where we try to expose kids to, well, really fun to play a video game, but have you ever thought of making a video game? And what are all the things that go into making a video game? Because video games are pieces of software. People forget that. And a lot of these online games are very sophisticated software platforms. Like one thing I often say is like, Facebook's a website, right? But Facebook's actually one of the world's most sophisticated pieces of software. So when you kind of link it to things that they're used to, they know, you start to get their brains turned on to thinking about, wow, how did somebody make this? Wow, there's a lot that goes into this. And so we kind of start with that. We do website development because that's a really good way for kids to kind of manipulate um, pixels on a screen and start to understand how does this actually work? How does the internet work? How do video games work? And once you, you know, kind of get them hooked into things that they're already interested in, 
we find that they get those opportunities to understand that, oh, actually, I'm good at this, and it's really fun. And that is an exciting early point to help them think about, well, maybe I could do this as a career path. And the other exciting thing is that these are high-paying jobs, and these are also jobs in high demand going unfilled all across our country. So it's really a really opportune moment in time right now to continue to build technology fluency in young people and adults. All adults, I believe, with exposure can work in the tech field, too. This is like totally not a question, but just an aside that in college I took one class that was like a video game production class and we had to do, it was one of those like situation games, choose your own adventure type things. And it was like one of the coolest, but also probably one of the most difficult classes that I took just learning the different languages and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. For people in the process of learning those different languages, are there certain tips that you have for them in terms of like how to remember it all? Or are there certain skills that you need coming into it? This is something that I often say, and this is kind of what I started to see when I was in college, when I was taking computer science classes. There was a group of people, probably maybe like a third of the class, that just naturally kind of got it. They kind of understood the way the languages worked, could naturally pick them up, and could, I would say, kind of do well practicing on their own without really a classroom or teacher scenario. And then I would see like another third roughly group of the class this is the group that I fell in I could understand it a bit but I really needed guidance and practice it wasn't coming naturally and that was really the programming aspect now the programming aspect is only one aspect of all technology production like there's project management there's this job that I often say it's called scrum master highest paying jobs you've never heard of in 2021 scrum master very high on the list I often say like, to people, don't get discouraged if it's not coming naturally because there's, with practice and with patience and with just exposure, and if you kind of enjoy working with it, but maybe you're not interested in being a programmer, there's hundreds, thousands of other high paying jobs that you can get in the technology industry that are not just simply the programming jobs. And that was where I fell. So I was more interested in how do people use computers? So not necessarily the programming language, but like why would someone click a certain button? Or how do you get them to journey through a website? And even like system design, like why is something well designed or poor designed? Quality assurance, like testing, that's a really fun job for people that are you know, used to like seeing, oh, that's, that's an error or you know, want to solve challenges. And so for me, it really wasn't all that important that I wasn't going to be a programmer because I was able to be a communicator to help programmers understand what users needed. And those are in-demand high-paying jobs because there's not enough people that are even comfortable talking to developers about technology. So we need more people talking about technology to do essentially the work of the future and in my belief, and I'm not alone in this, for all work. Um, just out of curiosity, like what is a scrum master? What do they do? <laughs> okay, so a scrum master is essentially a project manager for a technology project or a software project using a method called scrum. Scrum is a, it's an agile development methodology. So there was a lot of in the 80s, like lean project management and all these processes that were developed to help people kind of work together better. Just projects are hard. How do we help us all get a project done? And Scrum is one way of doing that. And a Scrum master is the person that is like the champion of the team to help just cheer people on, remove barriers. It's essentially a, maybe say, glorified project manager for technology projects. Okay, cool. In terms of where you see, I guess, the industry going or in the way the industry is changing, I mean, you say you're, this is about the work of the future. What does that future look like? Are there certain programs that are maybe becoming out of use and ones that are, people should look more to if they're trying to prepare? 
What I would say about the future of technology is there's a new, I would say, we're calling it like Web 3.0 at this point with the metaverse and all this conversation about this virtual world that in the future will be part of our everyday world. Uh, which is super exciting. I'm feeling like this moment is, in time is a lot like when the internet first started coming out and there was like the big dot com, you know, everybody wanted to go buy a domain name and if you did, you you know, are a millionaire now for buying like a little string of characters. It's that again, like people are, you know, buying property in the metaverse and I raise that to say that I still see quite a disparity between who can actually even access the metaverse in a way that is early. Um, it's still predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly wealthy, predominantly um, early adopters of technology. So there's a, I mean like 99% of our population right now is not able to engage in Web 3.0 in the way that some are. And I think that we need to move towards educating all of our population so that nobody's left behind yet again as technology continues to change. And then the other thing I would say is our lives are so mediated by technology. Most of the experiences we have are mediated with a computer at this point in time. And so assuring that all people can do things like shop online, do doctor's appointments, access information that they might not have had, um, that there's still a very, very um, large number of people that aren't able to do those things. So as technology continues to evolve into these very new directions that people still can't even wrap their heads around, like AI and automation and the metaverse, um, we need to make sure all people are, you know, coming along together and being able to participate in our society. Mm -hmm. I also just thought, like, broadband and having access to Internet in general mm -hmm. is something that is still not very consistent across right. the country. Yeah. There is a new federal program called the Affordable Connectivity Program, and that is a program that is allowing people that may not have access to broadband to be able to get affordable connections. And so that is a program that um, I think is under... Um, known about. People just don't know how to connect to this program, but there is a good program. And I'm also thrilled that we ha now, for, for the first time in U.S. history, had uh, the passage of the Digital Equity Act, which is helping to create a way for the states and then states to help their communities um, create a more digitally equitable um, community and society, which is very needed so that nobody is left behind, both internet access, access to devices, and then access to training. Because you need all three, I think of it as like a pyramid. You need the device, you need the internet connection, and you need to know how to use it in order to be productive. Now, you mentioned that you were maybe like one of few women in your class, or maybe few women in the room in your office. Mm -hmm. As a woman in STEM, like what was sort of your experience getting to where you are today? And how do you feel we can maybe improve access for women into fields like these? I think when I was in high school, like there was kind of an equal number of boys and girls in my class. And it was when I got to college that I realized, oh, where are all the girls slash women? And I started to understand that, huh, I just don't know why, like a lot of the, the gals in my classes in high school didn't move on to more technical education or engineering schools at college. And I am... Um, Disappointed to say it's really not changed that much. We've done a lot of talking. We've, there has been some momentum, but I don't see a great number of change over the last 20 years, which is why I'm thrilled that, you know, I've been able to work on, you know, Cancun Communities, which is actually, instead of speaking about it, actually getting to work on creating some change. I believe it really does come down to exposure when people are young, in particular, I think that girls still have those cultural barriers. I, all people have all kinds of cultural barriers. We have so much bias that we're not aware of in our present every day. But you know, for girls, it does seem like there's still this misperception that it's not you know, women's work or it's 
potentially maybe they're not going to be good at it in their own minds. Like they don't see themselves in these roles. And so making sure there's opportunities for young girls, girls of all ages to see themselves in these jobs, I know is one way. And to expose them, like I was saying, if, if a young, young woman or a girl starts to see themselves in their classroom, say in seventh grade, creating a really cool digital pelican and think, wow, this is really fun and I'm good at it. You can't ever like flip that switch to think, well, that wasn't fun and I'm not good at it. So later in life, like pursuing a career, especially when you hear it's actually a high paying industry, I feel like that's where we need to continue to invest more work. I also think there's no guarantee right now for a kid, you know, at least in New York State, in many states across the country, that they're going to get computer science education in their classroom day. There's exposure, enrichment, there's lots of things happening, but it's not a part of their sort of standard curriculum. And I do believe that we need to make sure that every student gets exposure so that they can be exposed to the fact that they might actually enjoy and be good at this stuff. What advice do you have for those who are just getting started, who maybe are just had their interest peaked in this and they're wondering where to go or how to go about it? Okay, the first thing I would say is most definitely don't get discouraged early on. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I tried it. It's not really, I'm not that good at it or it's not for me because you know they might just think it's too hard. I would say just keep going. If, if one language is a little bit tricky, start with something that might be a little simpler. Like if you're starting with maybe Python. Maybe start with a little HTML if you feel like Python's a little too tricky. There's lots of different kinds of technologies. Continue to just try and experiment and always be mindful that if your mind starts to tell you, oh, I'm not good at this, like there's other things in the tech industry that you probably will be good at. Like if you're good at customer service, say you work in a restaurant and you love um, interacting with people as a uh, restaurant like server, actually you might be great at software customer service, which does require technical skills. Um, so there's all these um, ways that people can fit into the technology industry that you know people mostly think of, oh, I'll be a computer programmer, but there's so much more. And I would just say, keep exposing yourself to opportunities. Um, there's programs like ours that help people get training and then also match them up to job opportunities. So we help people connect with employers um, because it is kind of tricky and hard on your own online to just, you know, you can practice, but Who's hiring? You might not even know the companies in your neighborhood or in your backyard. So um, connecting with programs that are doing like technical training and like some job matching, job placement, job coaching type work, work is really helpful. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it. Anne-Marie Lanassi is the founder and CEO of CanCode Communities, which has partnerships and locations across upstate New York. You can learn more at their website, cancode.org. our changing exhibit gallery. The current exhibit we have in here is called Under the Arctic, and it is about the permafrost that is in Alaska. Now that communities across the country have relaxed their COVID-19 restrictions, many people are returning to their favorite museums, myself included. Earlier this year, I took a drive to Western Massachusetts to speak with the new director of the Springfield Science Museum. The Springfield Museums actually consist of five buildings spread out on one campus in downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. But the Science Museum is one of its oldest. It officially opened in 1899 after a 40-year stint in Springfield City Hall. Jenny Powers has been with the museum as an educator and family engagement coordinator for about a decade. She's the first woman to take the helm since Grace Pettis Johnson in 1949. And from the sound of it, she's ready to dust off its collections and bring the museum into the 21st century. 
I was a long-term substitute teacher and I used to teach science most. I had a science mentor who was a full-time teacher and I got to know her classroom so well that I knew the cycle of the year and what lessons would be taught at what time. I was also a Girl Scout leader and we did tons and tons of nature activities and STEM activities. Then I was also homeschooling my child whose primary interest was science. So I spent a lot of time out you know, looking at dinosaur tracks or going to museums with him also. First, congrats on the new position. Thank you. the director. How does it feel? It feels really good, a little bit intimidating, but really, really good. I guess, what are your goals as director? My goal is to make the museum um, a more interactive environment and to really update it. We do have some things that haven't been updated since the 90s, and our Africa Hall was redone in 1981 really beautifully, but because that was so long ago, it needs to be updated again. We're going to go into one of my, another one of my favorite rooms. Powers sees room for improvement and opportunity in just about every room we walk through. Power says attendance has doubled since the launch of the nearby Amazing World of Dr. Seuss Museum in 2017, so some of the more interactive buttons and levers are worn down, and she's plucked her fair share of curious toddlers off the animal exhibits. But Power says other exhibits have simply become outdated or inaccurate with the discovery of new information. The Hall of Dinosaurs, for example, is one of Power's favorite rooms, but she's got big plans for the 20-foot-tall life-sized T-Rex replica at its center. Ooh, wow. <laughs> you can't miss that. I hear a lot of toddlers crying in here. But this dinosaur is one year younger than me, so it's been around for a while. And this model is not correct anymore. We've learned more about dinosaurs since this was installed. So one thing you never see in a T-Rex uh, footprints fossil is a tail mark. They don't drag their tail. They use them more like a cat for balance. And so that's one way you can tell this was incorrect. Another thing is that this T-Rex skull, well, what would be inside there for a skull, would be shrink-wrapped. It didn't make room for fatty deposits and muscles and things like that in its face. And so we know that's another element that will be in our new T-Rex. Did you know that the first dinosaur tracks ever identified were from our area? No, I did not. So they were identified by a young boy, he was about 12, who worked on a farm, and he found these footprints and dug them up and brought them back to the family, and then people were brought in who eventually identified them, and those were the first dinosaur fossils ever, not necessarily found, but identified. So we have fossils from the Power says the local angle is integral to the museum. After all, a good way to learn about the world is to start where you are. As you walk through the exhibits, you'll see live fish and reptiles from the Connecticut River watershed. A collection of portraits in Native American Hall celebrates members of the local Native community. And a panel by the museum's Spark Lab on the second floor teaches visitors about 19th century inventor Margaret E. Knight, who lived in Springfield when she patented a machine to mass-produce flat-bottom paper bags. So while Powers is certainly brimming with ideas, she notes any changes will take time, as it's important to gain the feedback and support of the local community first. In African Hall, she envisions a board where the museum can lay out its plans for the space and guests can vote for which aspects of African history they'd like to learn more about or suggest new ideas altogether. Some things that probably won't see a lot of change are the traditional but treasured dioramas in the museum's mammal and habitat halls. Because these exhibits have been here for a really long time, they're very special to people. And people don't always want to see changes to things that they love or things that are part of their family traditions. So that's part of the reason that we want to do that listening because we want to make sure that we get to keep some cherished memories but also bring it up to date. 
Some improvements, however, are already underway. The museum Seymour Planetarium is expected to install a full-dome projector this fall, opening it up to a wider selection of full-dome movies, planetarium shows, virtual tours, and Spanish-language shows for Springfield's Latino community. And the interactive projects and exhibits on the second floor are always changing. I think museums, especially museums that want to survive, are becoming a lot more people first and collections second. It's not really supposed to be about what you hold behind the scenes that no one ever gets to see. It's supposed to be about your visitors. We love our visitors here. Honestly, that is where I get the energy to keep pushing forward is getting to see visitors come in and enjoy the things here. So I do think that community-focused, visitor-first. That's the direction all museums are going to go. And I also think interactivity is 100% crucial. One of the things that I've learned since I've been here is really the key to human learning is simple, positive interactions. And so I think more museums will be going in the direction of creating a way that families can interact together or that students and teachers can interact together to make the memories and the information that they learn in the museum stick. Those are definitely things I want to implement here, but I think most museums are going to go that way because I think, you know, people don't just want to see a case of objects and walk by it. And, you know, buttons are not really counting as interactives anymore. All you have to do is push it. No, we need you to be able to go a little deeper than that. I guess one of my questions for you is, what was something that sort of fueled your love of science? And if you have any, I guess, advice for girls who want to learn more? Fueled my love of science? Well, definitely my experiences with my own child being so interested in science. Definitely people overall. There was a curator who has since retired here who taught me so much about astronomy. And I wasn't, I hadn't really considered an interest in that before. And now I love astronomy and I try to come to our astronomy club meetings here at the museum. And then that same teacher that I subbed for who had that classroom, the way she taught children and the way it improved their lives in really obvious ways also inspired my love of science. I should thank my eighth grade teacher, Mrs. Keltonic too. She, that was my favorite class that year uh, was science. All right, well, that was all the questions that I have for you off the top of my head, but is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like me to know or that you'd like our listeners to know? Something that I find interesting about this job specifically is that I have nine people who work for me and seven of them are men and one of the women I literally never see because she works on the weekend and so it is interesting going from the education department which was definitely female dominated we had a few men now and again but now I've moved into a different position where it's male dominated and I've always thought of myself as a woman's woman so trying to become a man's woman is a little challenging but I'm really enjoying the people that I work with. Jenny Powers is the director of the Springfield Science Museum in Springfield, Massachusetts. You can learn more about all of the Springfield museums including the amazing world of Dr. Seuss Museum at springfieldmuseums.org. Thank you. 
That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Anne-Marie Lanassi and Jenny Powers for participating in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests and find episodes new and old, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jesse King, and we'll be back next week for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet bells and lips.